Well, I want to begin uh, the sermon this morning uh, with a confession. And, and here is my confession. Your pastor is a fool. Your pastor is a fool. I am a fool. I am a, a foolish man whose folly has been on full display recently. And my folly has been on full display recently through uh, our recent move. Now, as many of you know, a little less than a month ago, uh, we received notice that the house in which we were renting and ordering was going to be sold. So that meant we had to move. Uh, We had to find a new place to live, one that would work for both our family and our ministry. And we had to find that new place before March 31st, because that's when we needed to be out of of the old place. Now, many of you know this, uh, moving is never easy, (laughs) nor fun, Uh, but Because of some difficulties with our own financial situation and that coupled with the current insane housing market around here, um, when I first heard that we had to move, uh, I greeted the news with a feeling of impossibility. Impossibility. See, moving wasn't in my plans for us, and for good reason. We didn't have the funds. Uh, We needed a very specific type of place, one that would fit our family, one that could have my office, uh, one that would work for our small group gatherings for our church, our homeschooling needs. We needed a place that wasn't too far from RBC. And such a place within our budget had proven really hard to find. And and then there was the timing, uh, which also seemed far from ideal. Uh, We needed to move out at least, you know, right before Easter Sunday. And, you know, Easter Sunday is kind of a big Sunday on the church calendar. And David, our ministry assistant, he's going to be gone towards the end of March. He's heading down to Arizona to visit family. And the plane tickets have already been purchased and all that was set. So, so I didn't know if he'd be around at all to preach for me while I moved our family. And so when I heard and I started thinking about all of the details, uh, <laughs> I started to freak out. I started to freak out. I didn't know what we'd do. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know what I would do. And in my freak out, <laughs> I also got frustrated. I got angry. And honestly, I wasn't frustrated or angry with the folks who were telling us that we had to move, we were selling our house. Instead, I was frustrated with God. I was actually angry with God. And my thinking went something like this Why, God, are you doing this to me? Don't you understand my situation? Don't you know how hard this is going to make things for me? Are you punishing me? Don't you realize that I don't know what to do? But I'm going to have to try to figure something out. I'm going to have to try to figure something out. And right there, that was the root of Ryan's folly. That was the root of my folly. I thought that fixing this situation, figuring out a new home that would work for our family, work for our ministry, figuring out in this market, figuring out with this difficult timing, I thought that that was all riding on my shoulders. I thought it all rested on my ability. That it was all up to my skill and my wisdom to somehow save our family from what God had allowed to be dumped on us. Now here's the thing. If you would have asked me about the situation when it happened, I would not have necessarily articulated it that way. God, why are you doing this to me? But that's where my heart was. That's where my heart was. I was freaking out. I was panicking. I was looking to my own ability, and I was afraid we were going to end up living in a van down by the river. Okay? That's where I was. I didn't see how any of this was going to work. (laughs) But this morning... Having spent the last two weeks in our new home, an amazing home that is far beyond what I ever expected, I stand here this morning in front of all of you feeling like a fool. Like a fool. You see, while I was in the midst of my freak out, God was doing something amazing. He was actually giving, me, giving us something better than what I was trying to hold on to. Our new home, and some of you have been there, our new home is amazing. It's better for our family. It's better for our ministry. It's in a great neighborhood. It's closer to the church. I'll tell you, I could not ask for anything more than we have in this new home. And the way in which God provided this new home, and the timing of our move, and the help of so many of all of you, 
the overwhelming grace of all of it. It was so obvious that my heavenly father was the one who was doing it all. And he didn't, he didn't need me or my ability. He actually used the situation to remind me, he has me. He has me. He has me. He cares for me. He provides for my needs. And he delights to bless me in spite of me. And so that's why I'm confessing I'm a fool. I I foolishly thought in this heart of mine, again, I wouldn't have probably articulated it that way, but I foolishly thought in this heart of mine that it was all riding on me. That somehow I was the one who was needed to be the savior from this difficult situation. How foolish. (laughs) But as I say that, um, I also know that I'm not the only one here this morning to ever think that way. Amen? I'm not the only one to ever think that way. Foolishly trying to be our own savior. I think that's something that many of us, too often, uh, sometimes daily struggle with. Even, Even when we know better, even when we know better, it is so tempting to look to our own efforts and our own abilities to try to save ourselves. And sometimes this this temptation is exposed by our struggles with the, the temporal needs of life. We have to move, or we get laid off at work, or our car dies, or there are unexpected medical bills. And so, what happens? We start to stress about how we are going to save ourselves in this situation. We start to stress about how we are going to manage, about how we are going to cope, about how we are going to fix this situation. We are so quick, brothers and sisters, to run to our own efforts and our own abilities. Amen? We are so quick. But sometimes this doesn't simply show up with you know, a job change or having to move. Sometimes this, this resting in our own ability manifests itself in our relationship struggles. It shows up in our relationship struggles. We think, if only I was a better mom or a better dad, my kids would be more behaved. Or if only I could drop those 20 pounds, my spouse would be more attentive. Or if only I was younger or richer or more charismatic or more athletic or whatever you want to add in there, I wouldn't still be single. And we start to approach life like it's all riding on us. We start to live like, If we could just be perfect, then all of our relationships would be, what? Perfect. And the real danger with such thinking happens when we apply it to the reality of our own souls. We can begin to approach the reality of our own souls, our life with God and before God, like it's all riding on us. We can begin to approach God like, like if we could just be perfect, then our relationship with him would be perfect. But guess what? Day in and day out, we find ourselves doing what? Falling far, far short of being perfect. And so we stress. We grow frustrated. We lose that sense of delighting in God and his love because we're so focused on our own abilities. So focused on us. We're so focused on trying to be our own savior. Our own savior. But what we're going to see this morning is that such a pursuit is absolute foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. When we try to play our own savior, when we are so quick to run to our own efforts and our own abilities and and rest in those things, we are fools. We're fools. We, we who have and who delight in a sovereign, wise, and loving God, when we try to do what only he can do, we are fools. We are fools. And we're going to see that as we return to our study of the book of Galatians. So take your Bibles and turn with me, if you haven't done so already, to Galatians chapter 3. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are working through this awesome and powerful book of Galatians. And we are uh, here in Galatians chapter 3. And, and as you're turning, i got to tell you, I was laughing a little bit last Sunday when I was contrasting in my mind the text that our brother David was preaching from with the text that I'm going to be opening up this morning. So the last two Sundays, David wonderfully led us through the, the beauty of Psalm 63. 
And there in Psalm 63, we find such rich and poetic language like, your steadfast love is better than life, right? What a great phrase. What a great encouraging phrase. Your steadfast love is better than life. Or my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So encouraging. But look how our text for this morning opens. That was the last two weeks. Now look at our text for this morning. Look at the opening line of Galatians chapter 3. It's your encouraging word for this morning. (laughs) Oh, what? Foolish Galatians. Here there is no poetic language. Here there is no beautiful similes. There is just a sharp, stinging rebuke. And this is very clearly a rebuke. The Apostle Paul is not, not chuckling at the Galatians saying, Oh, you guys, you guys are being so silly. No, this is the great Apostle Paul, the man who loved Jesus, the man who suffered greatly for the gospel. And he is filled with zeal and with righteous indignation. And he is now letting it fly at the Galatians. He's letting it fly. The word that he uses here, which is translated as foolish by all the major English translations, is a word that means literally against the mind. Against the mind. It is mindlessness. It is thoughtlessness. It could be translated, oh, you dim-witted Galatians. Or, oh, you, you senseless Galatians. Or as J.B. Phillips put it in his classic paraphrase of the New Testament, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic. Paul's letting it fly here. He, he's letting it fly and he's cutting it straight. And what I mean by that is that Paul is addressing a situation and, and the absolute foolishness of the people in that situation. He is addressing that situation clearly. He is addressing that situation directly. And too often, in our PC culture, that's not something common nor appreciated. In our modern culture, we often get so caught up playing language games that nobody speaks clearly or directly about anything. People are too busy trying to dance around, you know, offending anyone. I don't know how many of you saw this this last week, but Gal Gadot, who is the actress who recently played Wonder Woman... She sent out this, what I thought was seemingly harmless tweet, celebrating the life of Stephen Hawking, who passed away this last week. And here's what her tweet said. Rest in peace, Dr. Hawking. Now you're free of any physical constraints. Your brilliance and wisdom will be cherished forever. Sounds like a kind and gracious remembrance, right? Sounds like nice words, right? But people got all upset. They got all up in arms. Social media, the internet exploded because people were accusing her of discriminating against people with disabilities because she said, now you're free of any physical constraints. It's just crazy. It is. I mean, here she was celebrating this man's life, his wisdom and his brilliance, and people completely missed the point. And I have to wonder, what would such people think? Wearing words like this from the Apostle Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This is Holy Scripture. This is the very Word of God. And it shows us that sometimes things need to be blunt. Sometimes things need to be direct. I love what Martin Luther, another man who who knew how to speak directly, I love what he commented on this. He writes... A worldly person would interpret this, Paul's sharp words to the Galatians, he would, a worldly person would interpret this as reviling rather than as godly criticism. Did Paul give a bad example then? Or was he spiteful against the churches of Galatia? No. For it is legitimate for an apostle, a pastor, or a preacher to criticize with Christian zeal the people committed to his charge. Such criticism is fatherly and godly. This sort of anger is good. For in criticizing my brother, child, pupil, or subject in this way, listen, I do not seek their destruction, but their profit and welfare. This sort of anger is good because what's the focus of it? Not a person's destruction, but their profit. And their welfare. And and that is something so important for us to hear in this day and age. We are so easily offended. But sometimes for our good, for our profit and our welfare. Guess what brothers and sisters? We need a sharp rebuke. Amen. 
Five people are like, uh, I think so, maybe. But we need a sharp rebuke. Sometimes for our prophet and our welfare, we need a sharp rebuke. We need hard-hitting, godly criticism. I don't know if you're familiar with this proverb, but you should be. Proverbs 27, 6. Remember this? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's what we're finding here in this text. Paul has some sharp words for those under his care. He has some sharp words for his friends in Galatia. Because his friends in Galatia were acting like fools. They're acting like fools. And they're acting like fools because they were trying to add on to the gospel. They were trying to play their own savior. We we discovered this actually in the opening of this letter. Go ahead for a moment. Just turn back to chapter 1. And let me remind you of Paul's opening address to the Galatians. Here, you look at chapter 1, starting in verse 6, in another strongly worded statement. Look what Paul writes, starting in verse 6, chapter 1. I am astonished. I'm amazed. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. That's a strong word. It means condemned, eternally condemned. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, things were serious there in Galatia. And Paul is serious about what's going on there. These false teachers had come to Galatia. They had infiltrated these churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted there in Asia Minor. They'd infiltrated these churches that had started well. As we talked about previously, Paul and Barnabas had traveled through this region of Galatia, this area in Asia Minor. And they had gone through and preached the gospel in cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And both Jewish people and Gentiles, a lot of Gentiles actually, had embraced the gospel. They'd embrace salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Churches had started. But then, after Paul and Barnabas had had left and traveled back to their sending church of Antioch, other teachers came to these young churches. And these other teachers were Jewish, like Paul and Barnabas. And they claimed to trust in the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, like Paul and Barnabas. But they were teaching something very different from Paul and Barnabas. It was so different that Paul here calls it a different gospel, actually a damnable gospel. And this damnable gospel was that faith alone in Christ alone isn't enough. It's not enough. You see, these Jewish teachers that had come to town, they were telling these Gentile Christians that in order to truly be embraced by God, in order to truly be part of God's people, you need to add law keeping to your faith in Christ. They were teaching that in order to truly be accepted by God, we all need to turn to Moses to finish what Christ started. Commentator John Stott, he explains the message of these false teachers so well. Listen to what he says. He said, the false teachers did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stress that you must be circumcised and keep the law as well. In other words, you must let Moses finish what Christ has begun. Or rather, you yourself must finish by your obedience to the law what Christ has begun. You must add your works to the work of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. That's the way you're teaching. But beloved, guess what? That is not, that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. However, the Galatians were drifting from that. They're acting like, like we need to take up the mantle of Savior and we need to seal the deal with our own works. Like, like we, had to, we have to finish what Christ started. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That is absolute foolishness. That is absolute foolishness. And Paul actually spent all of chapter 2 making that point abundantly clear. There, as Paul defended his gospel, sharing stories from his own ministry, 
he, he built up there in chapter 2, he built up to this great explanation of how a person is, is justified, how a person is declared righteous, how a person is accepted before holy God. Take, take for a moment here and just turn over to chapter 2 now. And, and let's look at the text here starting in verse 15. Let me remind you of what we saw there in chapter 2. How it's all kind of built up to this great explanation of justification. How a person is justified, how a person is accepted by God. Look at verse 15. What Paul says, and remember, here he is, he's responding to the Apostle Peter's folly. And he says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So, so we're, we're, we're insiders, we're not outsiders. We have the law, we have the teaching of Moses, all these things. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified, not declared righteous, not accepted by God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by works of the law, only the top 10%. What does it say? By works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's the thing. This path that the Galatians were pursuing, trying to earn God's acceptance by what they did, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Instead, our only hope is faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Our only hope is faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. But here's the thing. When we turn from that, well, look at what Paul says in the final verse of chapter 2. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. Paul explains him. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, it's either acceptance by what we do or acceptance through the finished work of Christ. And if it's acceptance through what, I, what we do, what I do, then the question is, what in the world was Christ doing up there on the cross? You see, when we try to add our our works to the finished work of Christ, we end up with a purposeless cross. I don't mean this to be offensive, but that's just what our Roman Catholic friends need to understand. When we try to add our works to the finished work of Christ, we end up with a purposeless cross. But that's the way the Galatians were carrying on. They were living like acceptance by God was found in Their works being added to Christ's works. But Paul says, such a pursuit nullifies the grace of God and makes the the cross of Christ of no purpose. And it is absolute foolishness. It's foolishness. When we try to do what only God can do, we are fools. We are fools. And these Galatians, they were being so foolish that Paul wondered if someone had put a spell on them. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 3. Look here at verse 1 of chapter 3. Here after a strong rebuke, Paul asks them this question. Who has bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, now this word that's translated as bewitched, it's an interesting term. It's found only here in all of the Greek New Testament. And it's a term that describes someone exerting an evil influence upon you. And I think that's a good description of what was going on there in Galatia. These, these false teachers had come to town, and, and they were drawing these Galatian Christians away from the purity of the gospel. They were, they were drawing them away from the joy and freedom of grace and drawing them back into the, the exhausting bondage and the folly of, of self-righteousness and self-reliance. They were exerting an evil influence upon these churches. But what I found really interesting about this word is that it describes an evil influence exerted on a person through the eye. Through the eye. This term describes illusions that deceive, that entice, that enchant a person, that draws them away by tricking their eyes. Art of deception. And why I found that so interesting, this idea of enchantment through the eyes, is because of what Paul says next here. Look at the text. He speaks about what the Galatians have clearly seen with their what? Their eyes, what they've clearly seen with their eyes. He reminds them, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before your eyes. Now, 
Here's the thing. We have to be careful with this statement. Or we could misread it. We could look at this statement and we could read it literally as though the Galatians were there at Golgotha when Jesus was crucified. We could read it like they were literal eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. But that would be to read this statement wrongly. You see, the term that Paul uses here that is translated as publicly portrayed or by the NIV or the New King James as clearly portrayed, it's a term that actually comes from the world of marketing. That The Greeks would use this particular word to speak about something being put forth for public notice, about something being placarded about the public square. It was often used of advertising land for sale or of some kind of important town notice. And so what Paul is saying is that the reality and the significance of Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Messiah and him crucified, it was clearly communicated, it was clearly advertised to the Galatians. It was like, like Paul had put up this big graphic billboard, like he had painted this giant canvas, like he had placarded the reality of the gospel before their very eyes. See, by the power of the Spirit, he, through his gospel presentation, he had painted the picture for them so clearly. He had put before them the, the hopelessness of our condition because of sin. He had put before their eyes the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. He's the promised Messiah. And he put before their eyes the glory of what was accomplished at the cross. Now, by grace alone, through faith alone, anyone and everyone who believes has all of their sin forgiven, is clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and can come freely into the presence of holy God himself. Paul had made it all clear. He had put before their eyes the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. But now he says to them, those same eyes. I put it before your eyes. Now those same eyes are clouded, they're foggy, they're enchanted with another gospel, a foolish gospel that says we need to finish the deal, we have to keep the law, we have to take up the mantle of Savior and earn our way to God. And so Paul calls it like he sees it, it's foolishness. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Here's the thing. In his grace and his care for them, he doesn't just point out their folly. He seeks to undo it. He seeks to undo it. He seeks to rescue them from it. And he does this. I love the way he does this. He does this by reminding them of their Christian experience. And in doing it this way, in shaping the argument the way that we're going to walk through here in verses 2 to 5, I think what we're seeing is the brilliance the brilliance of the Apostle Paul. God graced that man with an amazing mind and an amazing ability to shepherd God's people. Look at what Paul asks the Galatians beginning verse 2. Look at the text. He says to them, after calling them out on this, he says to them, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supply the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Such a powerful argument. Such a powerful argument. Paul points them to their, their very experience as Christians and he challenges them to think about the catalyst in all of it. Was all the grace that came to them and all the grace that comes to us a result of working the law or believing the gospel? Was it a result of working the law or believing the gospel? And that's really Paul's one question here. Now, it's funny here. Paul says, let me ask you only this. As though he's going to ask them one question. Then he actually goes on to ask them four questions. He asks them four rhetorical questions. Look at the text. First, he asks them a question about the start of their Christian experience. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Then he asked them a question about the completion of the Christian life or the completion of our Christian experience here on earth. Having begun by the Spirit, are we now being perfected by the flesh? Then he goes on to ask them about their suffering as Christians, their suffering for the faith. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And then he wraps up his barrage of questions with one about God's display of power among them. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
So Paul asks them here four questions, but they're all really aimed at one thing. He's really asking only one thing. And he's asking, has your experience of the Christian life, and specifically the gift of the Spirit and the power, his power working in you, has that been a result of law-keeping or belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was all the grace that came to them a result of working the law or believing the gospel? And again, look at how he starts here. He begins by asking them about their, their Christian, how their Christian experience started in the first place. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, why did you receive the Spirit? So let's ask the question, why does anyone receive the Holy Spirit? That's an important question, right? People sometimes debate about that question. But it's a question that, that has an answer, and the answer is made very powerfully clear in the Scriptures. And especially it's made powerfully clear through the book of Acts, a book very focused on the Holy Spirit's ministry. So what I want to do for just a moment is I want to go to Acts and trace this theme through the book of Acts. Why does anyone receive the Spirit? What does the Scripture tell us? What specifically does the book of Acts tell us? So let's start in Acts chapter 2. It's our children's story this morning. I didn't plan that. It's kind of neat the way that all works out. But take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I just want you, I want you to see this because Acts gives us a great answer to this question. Why does anyone receive the Spirit? Look how the text starts. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We read, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, those who had heard the gospel and were believing it, those who were the followers of Jesus, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, so there they are, these disciples, and suddenly God, by his grace, sends the Spirit and fills them all with the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing, they weren't sitting around there trying to keep the law. Instead, they were just gathered together believing in Jesus. But what's really significant here in Acts chapter 2 for, for our discussion this morning is how all of this gets explained. Go down to verse 37. Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. And here after the apostle Peter and these other spirit-empowered witnesses have preached the gospel to this massive gathering of Jews there on the day of Pentecost, we see the Jews respond to this message. Look at verse 37. Look at what Luke tells us. Now when they, the Jews, heard this, when they heard that this Jesus whom they had rejected is the Messiah, and he raised from the dead, and he is the Savior. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter doesn't say, Go and keep the law of Moses. He doesn't say, Go and do a bunch of good works. He doesn't say, Go to church every Sunday, read your Bible every morning. Instead, what does he do? He calls them to respond to the gospel with faith. Verse 38. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is that is an expression of our faith in the gospel. He's calling them to express faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And here, this is key for our discussion. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit isn't given to you because you keep the law. Instead, the Holy Spirit is given to you simply by believing in the gospel. That was true for these Jews in Acts chapter 2. And it's also true of a bunch of Gentiles over in Acts chapter 10. Let's go over there now. Acts chapter 10. Turn over to Acts chapter 10. And here in Acts chapter 10... We, we find the story of the first Gentile convert in the early church, a Gentile named Cornelius. And uh, because of time, uh, we won't walk through his entire story. But, but just look here, chapter 10, look at what happens at the end of the chapter. Here in verses 34 to 43, the apostle Peter, he, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And then look at what happens starting in verse 44. Luke writes, verse 44, 
While he, while Peter was still saying these things, while he was still preaching the gospel, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who, what does the text say? Who heard the word. Not those who were keeping the law, not those who were being circumcised and working hard to earn God's favor. It, he fell on all those who heard the word. And the text continues. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so these other Jews, were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And that's a reference back to Acts chapter 2. And how would they receive the Holy Spirit? By works of the law? No, by hearing with faith. And that's the theme. If we had time, you could trace it all the way through the book of Acts. It's always by hearing with faith. And that's Paul's opening salvo to try to help remedy these foolish Galatians. He's telling them, don't you remember? Don't you remember how it all started? Don't you remember how the Holy Spirit came upon you on the first place, in the first place? It wasn't because you were there keeping the law of Moses. It was because of your faith alone in Christ alone. Go ahead and turn back now to Galatians chapter 3. Turn back to Galatians 3. And Paul here, having, having made this point about the, the start of the Christian life, Paul then explains that this is the entire plan for the Christian life. This is the entire plan for the Christian life. Look at verse 3. He tells them, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, do you really think that's how this works? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you really think that's how this works? And the problem is, brothers and sisters, we do. We do. We think, and we want to articulate it this way, but we act this way often, that God gets it started, and then we, with our own effort, we got to bring it home. We got to bring it home. But guess what, brothers and sisters? That couldn't be further from the truth. That could not be further from the truth. Over in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he begins that letter by reminding them that God is at work in them. And he tells them God's the one who's going to bring it home. Listen to what he says. This is Philippians 1.6. I know some of you have this memorized, and it's good that you have this memorized. Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this. Not, not, I hope this is the way things work. I think this is maybe the way things work. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God began it, and God will see it through to the finish. What a glorious promise. Amen? What a glorious promise. What the Spirit began, the Spirit will see through to the end. And it's not, it's not riding on our law-keeping to ensure that. It's simply about living by faith in Jesus. That's the reality of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. That's the reality of the Christian life. Mark this down. You don't live differently than you began. You don't live differently than you began. What I mean by that is it is always by faith alone in Christ alone. It is always by the Spirit's power at work in us. As one commentator put it, the Christian life finishes exactly the way it starts. The way into the Christian life is also the way on in the Christian life. There is no such thing as performance-based Christianity. Having begun by faith, we must continue by faith. Having begun by the Spirit, we live by the Spirit. I'm going to say this, and I know you guys know this, but it bears repeating. Our challenge is learning to live that way. Our challenge is learning to walk that way. Our challenge is learning to let go of trying to be our own savior. Amen? Our challenge is learning to try to let go of being our own savior. Learning to let go of those feelings like it's all riding on me. Our challenge is learning to just trust Christ and walk in dependence upon the Spirit's power. And, and what you understand, that's the same challenge that these Galatians were facing. They kept feeling like they had to do in order to be accepted by God. 
Like, like they had to keep the law in order to grow in grace. Like they had to jump through all of these hoops to truly be Christians. But the root of Christianity is not do. The root of Christianity is not do. It is the gospel declaration that it's already done. It's already done. And our life now is learning to walk in that, learning to walk by faith, learning to cling to the truths of the gospel, learning to follow our Lord Jesus, learning to rest in the Spirit's power, and embracing the reality that we have a Father who loves us and who works all things together for our good. And not simply if we're good little boys and girls, but because we are accepted in the beloved. Amen? Works all things together for our good. And here's the thing. Sometimes it's hard to believe that, right? And it's hard to believe because it's so amazing. Can it really be this wonderful that it's not all riding on us, that it's all done, it's not due? So we struggle to believe that and we struggle because it's so amazing. But guess what? It's true, amen? It's true. This is the reality of our life. This is the reality of our message. Our message is done, not But sometimes, preaching such a message, living out such a message, <clears throat> that'll face opposition. We'll face intense opposition. When we preach, you are a sinner. You deserve judgment. And nothing that you do can undo that. You can't work your way out of that. You can't add a bunch of religious works. You can't add a bunch of prayers to the saints. You can't add a bunch of being a good person to overcome that. When we preach that your only hope is to cling to the grace of God found in Christ alone, that's a message that wrecks our pride. It wrecks our pride. It attacks our our belief in human human ability. It attacks our man-centered way of thinking that that thinking that's rooted in these fallen hearts of ours. And so people push back, sometimes push back hard against the reality of the message of grace alone found in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And that's what had happened in Galatia. The people in these churches had embraced, had suffered for embracing the gospel message. They had suffered persecution from their fellow Gentiles who turned against them for abandoning the pagan gods. And they had suffered from Jews because <laughs> these Gentiles have the audacity to believe that, hey, Gentiles can be accepted by God simply by faith in Jesus. They had suffered. But now Paul asked them, look at verse 4. Was it all in vain? Was it all in vain? Was all of your suffering for the gospel in vain? Was it all just a way of time, waste of time? Now, now that you were turning from the true gospel, what was the point of you suffering for it previously, of suffering so many things? In other words, here Paul's asking them, why did you bear the persecution of the gospel when it looks like you really don't believe it? Imagine someone asking you that question. Why did you suffer so many things for something you seems like you don't really believe? That's a biting question, isn't it? That's a hard-eating question. Why suffer for what you don't even seem to believe? That's the question Paul's directing at. But as Paul asks him that, that hard question, what's wrong with you guys? This is foolishness. Why suffer for what you don't even believe? He also throws in a word of hope. Look at the text. Did you suffer so many things in vain? What does he say next? If indeed it was in vain. If indeed it was in vain. I think that's his way of saying, I don't think it was really a waste of time. I don't don't think it was all in vain. I really think that deep down you do believe these things. I I really hope that you're just being deceived temporarily and and you're going to get back on course with gospel living. And I think Paul had a good reason for that hope. You see, there in those churches in Galatia, there was a testimony of Christian life. See, although they they were in a bad spot now, carrying on like a bunch of fools, God had been at work among them in a mighty way. Look at the text. According to verse 5, God had greatly poured out his spirit upon them and even done miracles among them. And that happened not because they were so faithful in keeping the law, 
It happens simply because of their faith in Jesus. And so Paul tells them, you need to remember that. You need to remember that. They needed to take a step back and look at their lives and realize that their entire Christian experience had been one of God's grace poured out upon them because of their faith in Jesus, not because of their obedience to the law. Because of their faith in Christ, not because of the things that they did. And Paul is telling them to live like it works the other way around. That is absolute foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize that as well. We too, we need to regularly step back and remember that God's grace is never earned. And I say that you go, like, oh, amen, Ryan. <laughs> These hearts of ours, oh, they fall into that temptation of thinking we got to earn it. We need to step back and remember, brothers and sisters, God's grace is never earned by us. If it was, guess what? It stops being grace. (laughs) Grace, unmerited, you don't work for it, favor. That's what it means. God's grace that saved us, that, that empowers us by the Spirit, that helps us to face trials and suffering, that manifests in mighty works in our lives and in our church, and that will one day bring us home to glory. That is never earned by us. Instead, it's always freely given by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's how we need to live every moment of every day. That's how we need to face our trials and our struggles, our, our difficulties and our frustrations. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop living like God is just waiting to slam our faces in the dirt. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You live that way. Well, I know he, he loves me, but I don't know if he likes me. When you stop living like God is just waiting to slam our faces in the dirt, or, or believing that any good thing that happens to us is only because we work so hard to earn it. Think about this, brothers and sisters. The best thing that has ever happened to us came through absolutely no effort of our own. The very best thing that ever happened to us came through absolutely no effort of our own. The Bible says, but God showed his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. And so, brothers and sisters, if that is true, and it is, <laughs> it is, then why can't we believe it when the same Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not in him graciously give us all things? Graciously. Because we work for it? No. Graciously give us all things. You see, we don't need to be our own savior. Because we already have one. We already have one. And he's more than enough. Amen? He's more than enough. He's more than enough to carry us through our trials. He's more than enough to provide for our needs. He's more than enough to help us as parents or spouses or living as a single person or living as a widow. You don't need to try to rescue yourself. You don't need to be your own deliverer because you already have one and he's far better than you could ever be. So, brothers and sisters, we need to stop being fools. We need to stop being fools and just, just look at the reality of our own Christian experience. Just look at the reality of our own Christian experience. Hasn't it all been a testimony of grace? Hasn't it all been a testimony of grace? From the moment that we first believed, from the moment that the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to truly see the gospel and gave you a heart to love Jesus, it's all been about grace. Each step, every sustaining moment, each blessing, each trial that we've endured, each joy that we've known, it's all been about grace. It's all ours all ours by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of christ alone that's how it started and that's how it always will be 
That's how it always will be. And to approach life any other way, brothers and sisters, is to live life like a fool. It's to live life like a fool. But oh, our foolish hearts need to be reminded. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I don't know what to say. Your grace, the grace of God is so amazing. You are so good to us. We who deserve nothing. Nothing. And you, you give and you continue to give and give and give. And you delight to give to us. It's not about us jumping through the right hoops. You've, you've done it all. You love to give to us. Father, you love to give to us. We're your children. We're accepted in, in the Son, and you love to give to us. And everything you give is perfect. Even the trials, the hard times, we can take joy in it because it's from your hand and it's perfect. Everything you do for us is just grace. And we thank you for the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then it wasn't about us keeping a bunch of rules in order to have the blessing of the Holy Spirit, but through faith alone and Christ alone, he takes up residence in us and he's never leaving and he's always there to minister to us, to encourage us, to carry us, to give us strength and ability and joy in times when we don't think we could ever have any of it. And so we come to you, our Father, and we appeal for your grace again. Work in these hearts of ours by the Spirit work in these hearts of ours and help us just to rejoice in the wonder and majesty of the gospel. That you are for us, you are not against us because of Jesus. Help us to celebrate that in this time. That Jesus lived the life we've all failed to live, perfect, righteous, holy, sinless life. And through faith in him, we are clothed with that. We stand before you perfect. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are discouraged this morning. Through the bread, preach to their hearts. Perfect. Perfect in the sun. Help them to light that you see them that way. That you love them unconditionally. You have accepted them now and forever because of Jesus. And I praise you, Lord Jesus, that you went to that cross and You took the punishment, not a hypothetical punishment, but an actual punishment, the punishment for our sins. It all fell upon you so that all of our sin, past, present, and future, is all done with. Not because of us, but because of you. We praise you, Jesus. So, Father, by your Spirit, preach that message to our hearts, forgiven. I pray for those who who are here this morning, who got the weight of the past hanging on them. And they feel like it's so defining for them that you will always see them by what they did in the past. Help them to see it's all forgiven. You see them as pure, sinless. There's no condemnation. No condemnation because... Because of Jesus. So in this time, holy God, preach to our hearts. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our understanding and our delight in the gospel. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.